All right, church, as you're seated, I want to invite you uh, to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, For those of you that follow along with sermon notes through our app, uh, I'd encourage you to go ahead and get that uh, device opened and and ready to go. You have some fill-in-the-blanks there on the sermon outline, and so I'll give those to you on the screen here shortly. And so if you'd like to take notes like that, I'd encourage you to download our app so that you can have that uh, resource available to you. Everyone else, we're going to start this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to do something a little bit different over these next uh, couple of weeks and uh, kind of like a message series, a mini message series before we launch a, a brand new series through the book of James. And so we look to be doing that, uh, that book uh, most likely the, the first Sunday in August. But for the next couple of weeks, we're going to do a series called Twisted. Uh, those are misused verses in the Bible. And so before we begin to unpack the very first misused verse that we're going to address today, I need you to understand that I am not trying to pick on anyone this morning. I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm not trying to attack you. Rather, what I'm trying to do is to sharpen our thinking so that we can more precisely handle and apply the Word of God in our lives and into the lives of other people. So why I say that to you this morning, we're going to talk about something that you may be guilty of doing in the past. And so a lot of times when we're struggling, when we're having difficult seasons, trials, sufferings, we tend to say something to people in an attempt to encourage them, but I want to tell you that what we say might not be very encouraging at all. So a moment of honesty, remember, no condemnation, no judgment. How many of you, in a time of great difficulty in your life, have been told, or perhaps you have said to someone who's struggling, the words, God won't give you more than you can handle? Raise your hand. Come on, raise it, be honest. You've either had somebody say that to you, or it's been said, I mean, or you've said it to someone else. Well, here, here, here's the thing. The reason why I want to start here this morning is because I realize that some of us are in a difficult place, and we're struggling and, and suffering today. And if we're not in a difficult place today, then the odds are that very soon we might find ourselves in a very difficult spot. The reason why I want to address that statement, God won't give you more than you can handle, well, there's two reasons. First of all, because the Bible never says that. The Bible never tells us that we are promised to, that we will not get more than we can handle. And then the reason number two is because actually Scripture teaches us the exact opposite, that we will get more than we can handle. And so understanding this will enable us to give better encouragement to those who are in difficult places. And so the reason why I have you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is because many people claim that verse number 13 teaches the concept of us not getting more than what we can handle. And so look at 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
but with the temptation, He will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so many people who believe that God won't give them more than what they can handle explain that the word temptation that's used here in in verse number 13 can refer to either a temptation to sin or it could refer to a trial or a time of suffering. Well, you want to know something? That's absolutely correct. It could. The the Greek word that's rendered temptation can either mean uh, suffering or can mean temptation to sin. So then the question becomes, so why is it wrong to apply this verse to people who are in difficult seasons of life, a a hard trial? Well, well, the problem becomes uh, what is known as an exegetical fallacy. Let me back up. Any good book on biblical hermeneutics will tell you that every word has a range of potential meanings. And so the specific meaning that the author intends to communicate when using that word is determined by the context. Okay? So in other words, you know what the meaning of the word is that the author is trying to communicate to us based upon the context of the statement in which the word is actually used. And so in the context of the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 13, we cannot claim that Paul means both things at the same time. Is he talking about temptation to sin? Or is he talking about trials and suffering? Or is he talking about either one of them? If we attempt to uh, interpret this verse as though Paul is actually talking about either or, then we're committing what D.A. Carson, who's a New Testament scholar, would call an exegetical fallacy. He actually wrote a book, uh, D.A. Carson wrote a book called Exegetical Fallacies, And he calls this specific type of exegetical fallacy, he calls it the illegitimate totality transfer. This is the fallacy of reading every possible meaning of a word into the single use of the word. And so the question that we need to ask is not what is the range of meanings a word can possibly have in all of its uses, No, the question we need to ask is, what did the author mean to communicate through the word that he chose in connection to the specific context in which he gave it to us? So you got to take a bigger look at what's happening. And so you begin to expand your view from uh, verse number 13. And you need to see that this one word is used in that sentence or that verse, but that one verse is contained within a whole paragraph. And the whole paragraph is addressing something very specific. In fact, verse number 6 addresses those who desire evil. In verse number 7, Paul addresses idolaters. He's showing us that the context here is about sin. And then verse number 8, he warns against sexual immorality. He continues in the following verses to address sin. You get to verse number 12, and he gives us the exhortation, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It's continuing the focus of the passage is on addressing sin. 
And then we find ourselves in verse number 13. So with that in mind, now look at verse number 13. And he says, no temptation, no temptation to sin has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted to sin beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the the specific truth of this passage is that God knows a person's limit in respect to their temptation to sin. And based upon that knowledge, we know that He will not allow us to be tempted to sin beyond our ability to resist that sin. This is amazingly good news. Praise God for His grace that is extended to us. It ought to give us a little bit of excitement and gratitude this morning that God will give us the spiritual resources that are necessary in order for us to sufficiently stand up and avoid the temptation to sin when we're presented with it. Which means when the smoke of temptation is thick, when that fire of urge to sin burns strong, God is faithful every single time to provide us a means of escape and what we ought to be doing is take our eyes off of that temptation and begin to look for that emergency sign that will lead us to freedom and fresh air and so while it is beautifully true that god would not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability to resist it it is also equally true that God will allow us to suffer beyond what we can handle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we have Paul's autobiographical story in verses 8 through 11. And there it clearly shows us that God may give someone more suffering than they can handle. It says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experience in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we have received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us uh, from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So this passage shows us that Paul was burdened beyond his strength. To be burdened beyond one's strength is to have more than one can handle. And so God through Paul, is saying that it is very possible that we might experience more suffering, more trials than we can possibly bear. And this is a truth that's taught throughout Scripture. And the reality is that God allows suffering into our lives in order to accomplish something very good and very beautiful. There is a long list of reasons why God might allow suffering in your world. I'm going to give you five this morning. Only five. These are not complete. It's not exhaustive. But it's at least a start to help you understand the potential purpose 
behind any suffering that you might face. First of all, God allows suffering in order to help advance the gospel. God allows suffering to help advance the gospel. The Apostle Paul gives us that example. Paul was in prison. He was imprisoned unjustly. And there he writes to the Philippians and he says in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard. Paul is saying, in God's eye, it's far better for one man or for one woman to suffer a short time in this life so that a larger group of people might have the opportunity not to have to suffer for all eternity. So sometimes our suffering can be for the advancement of the gospel. Number two, God allows suffering in order to discipline his children. Let me give you a few verses. In Psalm 119, the psalmist writes in verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And then in verse number 75, it says, In faithfulness you have afflicted me. And then the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 12, It begins in verse number 7. He says, endure hardship as discipline. And you pick it back up in verse number 10. And it says, our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Amen? Absolutely. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Sometimes we suffer in order to be disciplined as a child of God. And please note that discipline is not the same thing as punishment. The purpose of punishment is to impose a penalty on something that was done in the past. And so the focus is on past action. The the purpose of discipline is to train for correction and maturity. And that focus is forward thinking. So, So one of the worst things that you could do as a parent would be to not correct your child early in life when they begin to show signs of of straying and, and wandering. So so in order to to help that correction, you might do something that you don't necessarily like to do and that's discipline your child so that you can produce something that you do like and that's obedience with the child. Does that make sense? And so the, the problem when it comes to understanding God is that he can see the good that will happen through the suffering that he allows but sometimes we can't see it. And sometimes we can't understand because we, we're in the middle of it. And while we're in the midst of it, we can't see or understand his long-term perspective on what he's trying to work in and through our lives. And if we're not careful in the midst of those hardships, we can become cold, bitter, even calloused towards God. Let me give it to you as an example. Or analogy. 
So suppose you're wandering through the woods. I don't know why you would. But surprise, suppose you're out walking through the woods. And you come across a bear. And the bear has been trapped. And its leg is in one of those snare traps. And all of a sudden, you begin to have compassion on that bear. And, and you want to help that bear. But that bear doesn't see you as a friend. That bear doesn't know what it is that you want to do. So there's no way that you're going to get close enough to that bear in order to release it and set it free. So, fortunate for you, you happen to carry around a, a tranquilizer gun, because we all do. I mean, it's Texas. You probably have a gun. It's probably not a tranquilizer gun. But for the sake of the illustration, you have a tranquilizer gun. And you want to help that poor, poor bear. And so you know what you need to do is to shoot that bear with one of those darts. And so you pull out that gun. But the bear doesn't understand the difference between a gun and a tranquilizer gun. And the bear begins to think, what in the world is wrong with you? I'm already trapped. Why would you want to further inflict pain and punishment on me? And so you shoot that bear. And the bear begins to drift off. Now you can approach the bear. But in order to release the bear from the trap, you're going to have to do something very difficult. You're going to have to push that trap further into its flesh potentially into the bone, so that you can push it far enough into him so that it will release the springs and open up. Now, if that bear were somewhat semi-conscious in the whole process, he more than likely would think that you're some sadistic individual trying to inflict more harm upon him. But the problem is, he can only see it through his limited perspective. And he can't understand why it is you're causing more pain into his life. And maybe even question, why are you making me suffer even more when I'm already in pain? You see, when we have a limited perspective on what's happening in our lives, then if we're not careful, we'll end up as frustrated, bitter, bitter angry individuals. Who, who wonder, why, God? Why are you allowing this in my life? Well, my question would be, why not? Who am I to think that I should be exempt from any hardship or trials in this world? And, and so, like the bear, sometimes we can't see the good that will occur from the suffering that we need to endure because we have that limited perspective on, on, on things. And so, may you know that sometimes God allows us to suffer in order to help advance the gospel. Sometimes he allows us to suffer in order to discipline his children. And then thirdly, sometimes God allows us to suffer in order to develop our character to develop our character. I've said this before and I'll say it as much as I can. God is much more interested in the development of your character than he is in the provision of your comfort. And that's what scripture teaches us. Romans chapter 3 says, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. 
and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And so, as we endure hardships and trials, we, we are trained to persevere. And that perseverance develops our character. So our character gets changed. And so we now have a hope and confidence that is rooted and grounded and growing. And that confidence isn't in ourselves and our own ability. That confidence is in God. And so sometimes God allows us to suffer so that our character can be developed. And then number four, God may allow us to suffer so that we might be able to equip other people. It equips us to help others. And so your trial may be a training ground to prepare you to help minister into the lives of other people. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So in your suffering, in your trials, the comfort that you receive from our Lord, the wisdom that you gain, the truth that you discover will enable you to minister to other people who are suffering or who soon will be suffering. So, so receive that training and that equipping process into your lives. And then let me give you number five. Sometimes God allows us to suffer in order to display His glory. To display His glory. We see this in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. It says, as he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, sometimes people say there's no such thing as dumb questions. Well, there's a dumb question. The guy was born blind he was blind from birth and who sinned this man so what it's 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 a weird question to me jesus says neither this man or his parents sinned but this happened so that the work of god might be displayed in his life do you see what's happening god providentially allowed this man to suffer for a short season of his lifetime, not because of any sin, but so that according to verse number three, the works of God might be displayed in his life. Check it out. Your suffering may be an opportunity for the glory of God to be made known. Yeah, some of you don't really think that's good news. But it's great news. Why do we run from it? Why do we expect to be free from it when God's Word is trying to prepare us for the life that we're going to face? Not all suffering is bad. Suffering can produce some great things in and through our lives. And so we ought to be encouraged because our suffering will pale in comparison to what God has in store for His children. 
I'm not trying to minimize your pain. I'm not trying to trivialize your suffering. I just want to encourage you that it helps if you'll take a long-term perspective on your life and what God is trying to do in and through your life. I think the Apostle Paul understood this truth. And I love the words that he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 9. He says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. And so in, in your trials, in those struggles of life, you are faced with the opportunity of either turning to God or running from Him. Which one will you do? Will you turn to Him or will you run from Him? Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse number 33. Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in Me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus offers the two things that we need when we're suffering. He offers us peace and courage. He offers us peace to deal with our present circumstance and courage to face whatever comes next. And that's a beautiful promise from our Lord. You see, God's ultimate answer to suffering isn't an explanation. No, the ultimate answer to suffering is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. See, suffering is a personal problem and it demands a personal response. And aren't you glad that our God isn't some distant, detached, or, or, or disinterested deity? He entered into our world. He entered into our pain. And He offers us both peace and courage in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. So in the midst of troubles, we can either turn to Him or run from Him. In the midst of your suffering, may you know that it is not true that God won't give you anything more than what you can handle. Because we just lined out some many different reasons on why you very well might be given more than what you can endure. So, so how are we to encourage one another? If 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 13 isn't rightly applied to this situation, then what truth from Scripture can we hold on to to find further encouragement for those difficult seasons or moments in life? I want to suggest to you that you stop using 1 Corinthians 10.13 to build false hope into people's life, and you start using 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 7 through 12, 7-10 says this, so to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
Then he says, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, (laughs) then I am strong. So instead of saying, God won't give you more than you can handle, may you begin to tell people that God will give you all the grace that you need for whatever situation that you face. That ought to be good news. That God's grace is sufficient for anything that you might be facing. So why do I think that's a better way uh, of giving encouragement to, to people's life? I'll give you three, three reasons real fast. First and foremost, it more precisely reflects the theological truths of Scripture. No matter how much suffering people face, no matter how deeply they hurt because of that suffering, may they know the truth that God's grace will be sufficient for them in their time of need. Number two, this places the focus on God, not on us. When we tell people that God won't give you more than you can handle, well, that is a man-centered statement. It focuses on a person's resource, an individual's ability. And when you focus on your resource or your ability, then, then that doesn't bring hope. That doesn't bring peace. But when we begin to shift the attention not on us, but on a God whose grace is sufficient, then we get our peace. Then we get our hope. Because we have it rooted in God. So, okay, it more precisely reflects the theological theological truths of Scripture. Number two, it places the focus on God, not on us. And then finally, this gives God all the glory. God gets all the glory. Paul tells us that it was when he didn't have the strength to face his own circumstances that that's when he found God's power and faithfulness was sufficient for him. It was all that he ever needed. That's why he became content no matter what it was that he faced because he knew that God was faithful and he could rely on the Father. It was his inability to uh, endure the suffering that he faced that led Paul to the greater knowledge and experience of God's provision, his comfort, and his care. So may we do away with God won't give you more than you can handle. And may we warmly embrace and share with other people that God's grace is sufficient for them no matter what situation they're faced in this world. May we take the attention off of man and we, may we place it on God. One final verse. And may you find great encouragement in this verse. In fact, I actually challenge you, if you're up for it, if you want to, to actually work to commit this passage of Scripture to memory. I promise you, if you'll memorize this passage of Scripture... It'll be a great source of strength and encouragement in your life. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, 
under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6-11. through 11. Oh, I'd be so anxious and interested to know how many of you will commit that to memory. I'm not going to put you on the spot. I am going to challenge you one more time. Whatever you have to do this week, take that passage of Scripture, write it out a hundred times, put it on a postcard, stick it everywhere that you can, in your bathroom mirrors, on your refrigerators, in your lunch boxes. I don't know. Whatever you have to do, oversaturate your mind this week with this truth so that you can be equipped and prepared and reminded from the Holy Spirit the next time you face great hardships and troubles in this life. May you know that after a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let's pray. Father, Help us to rightly apply your word to our lives and to rightly use your word as an encouragement to others. And so, Father, today we thank you for the truth of knowing that we will not be tempted to sin beyond our ability to resist that temptation. And our ability relies not on our own strength, but on the truth that you are so faithful that every single temptation to sin that we face will be met with an escape route provided by you. And God, we also thank you for the truth of knowing that suffering can produce good things in and through our lives. So in our time of suffering, may we take our eyes and our attention off ourselves and may we place it upon you. May we trust and rely on your grace. May it be sufficient for all. Father, in this moment today, whatever it is that we're dealing with, whatever sins that need to be confessed, decisions that need to be made, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move among us and that you would be glorified by the response of your people right here, right now. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.